Welcome back to On Call, a podcast from Amerisource Bergen, where we discuss the latest industry information relevant to our GPO member practices. The rise of genomic sequencing and use of novel agents in the new standard of cancer care has created new challenges in recognizing and managing toxicities. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Ian Olver, medical oncologist, bioethicist, researcher, and current professorial research fellow in the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide to discuss strategies and tools to support community oncologists in keeping patients on effective drugs by better managing the associated toxicities. The rise in genomic sciences has resulted in a paradigm shift away from one-size-fits-all standard chemotherapies to genomic-guided treatments. And this shift has, of course, created a lot of important changes in outcomes for cancer patients, but we've also seen and need to recognize that there are some associated toxicities with these novel agents that bear the same names as the toxicities we've been used to from standard chemotherapies and radiation treatment, but their behavior is different. In our podcast today, we're going to talk about some of the strategies and tools that are going to be needed to support community oncologists to help them keep their patients on effective drugs uh, by better managing these associated toxicities. Ian, can you please take us through the implications of this paradigm shift away from standard chemotherapy to the novel agents? And what does this shift really mean for oncologists who are managing their patients' treatment side effects when they prescribe immunotherapies and targeted treatments? Thank you, Fred. So that we got used to the toxicities of uh, cytotoxic therapy. Uh, Largely, they were myelosuppression, mucositis, and emesis. But when we moved to the immune-related therapies and the small molecules, we got a different set of side effects, and their causes were different as well. So although the immunotherapies in general were better tolerated than the cytotoxics, they do have toxicities um, related to overactivation of the immune system, which are often clustered together and referred to as immune-related events. So you can get the general side effects like like fatigue, you can get some myelose, but the ones that are most um, concerning because they're new and they're not something that we've been used to with cytotoxics are the organ-specific autoimmune type problems. Uh, For example, you can get a whole range of endocrine offices from hypophysitis, adrenalitis to diabetes, and these can be quite debilitating, but, but Fortunately, most of them resolve when you stop the immunotherapy and and sometimes uh, you have to give low-dose steroids and sometimes you can even reintroduce your immunotherapy. There's a whole range of new dermatological toxicities and and perhaps interesting rashes with uh, pruritus or perhaps uh, vitiligo uh, can be managed, but they include the whole range which includes the more life-threatening toxicities such as Stevens-Johnson syndrome and and pemphigoidin, whereas you might be able to use topical steroids and and, and antihistamines, you may then have to go on to oral steroids if you're not getting any sort of control. One of the toxicities that we're familiar with is mucositis, and of course this involves the whole GI tract and, and so is responsible for diarrhoea. 
But uh, the problem here is that we're not, it's not the same mechanism as you'd be used to with cytotoxics uh, interfering with the high growth fraction cells that are lining uh, the gut um, and making the mucosa. Here, we're talking about an inflammatory immune response. Uh, and so, again, it's a matter of stopping the immunotherapy. And, and often you have to treat with high-dose steroids uh, and it, it, sometimes the, the colitis will be refractory to that. Uh, and then you can use things like blockers like infliximab to try and uh, get control of the side effects. Again, most of the side effects resolve uh, in time. More worrying is when you get side effects like myocarditis, but the treatment is very much the same, stopping the immunotherapy and treating with first low dose and then high dose steroids. And, and as you escalate up, the cardiac function has been able to, to be improved. And then we've got things like arthritis and we've got just about any other organ the lungs, the liver, the eyes, neurological system, renal, hematological, that can be prone to these autoimmune inflammations, but they all get treated much in the same way in the first instance, and they'll often be uh, reversed. So Ian, as we're learning more then about clinically how, how people are responding to these novel agents, we seem to be learning as well more about the toxicities associated with these agents. Certainly the sciences of pharmacokinetics and pharmacogenomics have been helping to help define dosing and what agents people should be prescribed. Can you expand a bit on this clinical problem in terms of both treatment and supportive care, what we must look for and how we might address it? Look, the, the real problem is, and even with precision drug dosing, uh, although it's just the same for cytotoxics, immunotherapies or supportive care drugs, is that there's a large individual variability in, in drug exposure. And this has usually been characterized as overdosing if, say, people are poorly metabolizing the drug. But in fact, that's not the biggest problem because although the overdose applies to the first course, you then get a chance to alter uh, the dose uh, based on the observed toxicities. I think the bigger problem here is actually underdosing where you don't actually have any side effects uh, from the therapy, but the fact is the therapy won't be as effective and you won't pick that up uh, often until you re-scan or re-measure the tumour after two or three cycles. And of course, the same thing occurs in supportive care. If you underdose a supportive care drug, it may not work very effectively and that may result in you having to to change the dose or decrease the dose of your anti-cancer therapy, again, with, with a poorer outcome. So we need to be able to predict how people will metabolise the, the drug. And, and one example is, is, is the pharmacokinetics of the drug and, and, and looking at the, the, the enzymes that are likely to um, metabolise the drug and the other is the genomics of it, where you, you may be able to, to pick gene abnormalities that will tell you how a drug will be metabolized, and you can break the things into rapid metabolizers or poor metabolizers, and right from the first dose may well be able to uh, adjust um, doses so that you, you 
individualise the dose for each patient. And, and so I think we've got pharmacokinetic guided dosing. Now, at the moment, we actually have more information about that. We, we know more about the predictability of that. Pharmacogenomics is a more recent thing. It's got more potential because with the targeted therapies and immunotherapies, we, we need to look at the genetic profile in order to find the targets. And while we're doing it, we may well be able to examine those genes that are responsible for metabolism and get the two pieces of information out of the same single test. So it's got a lot of promise in the future. The problem is we still have a lot of work to do to correlate some of these gene changes and see how well they predict how a drug will be metabolised in the body. And so pharmacogenomics is how variances in the genome will influence an individual's response to different cancer drug treatments, uh, which may predict efficacy and toxicity. And of course, that can be applied to supportive care drugs as well. And with the one test with next, next generation sequencing, we may be able to get all the information about the targets and, and the metabolic um, uh, genes. So, so how do we apply this? We, we have a better understanding of how drugs and supportive care agents are metabolised and, and we'll, the pharmacogenomics will, will inform clinical decision making. So let me give a, a few examples, perhaps. Probably the most common one is the fluoropyrimidines and, and diapyrimidine dehydrogenase, which is the primary metabolic in, enzyme responsible for the inactivation of fluoropyrimidines, including both intravenous 5-FU and the oral pro-drug capecitabine. So if you have a genetic polymorphism in the encoding gene, DPYD, uh, that can be an established cause of DPD deficiency. And if you've got the DPD deficiency, you may have significant overexposure to the drug in the first course, uh, and that will give you uh, severe toxicity, particularly mucositis and diarrhoea. So prospective studies that have, have starting to demonstrate that if you upfront genotype for the DPYD 2A particularly, then you can actually inform uh, yourself about what dose reduction is needed. So, for example, carriers of DPDYD 2A may require about a 50% dose reduction. Um, and this will reduce the historical toxicity rate from something like three quarters down to more like a quarter. And the drug in dose death rate falls from 10% to zero because you, you're accurately dosing that first dose. And, and so that, that's a good example of how you can predict the, the toxicity by doing the uh, genomics and, and then altering your dose uh, appropriately. And depending on the variance, you, you might require more of a dose reduction than 50%. And, and this is something that's been um, collected together by groups, well, such as the FDA, but also the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium. I, I guess the issue is there are not 
in general terms, a lot of big clinical trials when it comes to, to immunotherapies and so on. We know more about our cytotoxics in this regard. So we have to have groups of experts predicting what sort of dose reductions we'll need. There are many other examples. I'll just give you a couple. With cytotoxics, you've got arenatecan and the UGT1A1, which encodes for the uridine diphosphate glucuronicidal transferase 1A1 enzyme and this will affect the uh, glucuronidation of the which is involved in many cancer therapies and again by measuring activity you can decide whether you need a, a dose uh, reduction with the first dose. When we come to the targeted therapies, uh, the small molecules like uh, amantinib often metabolize through the P450 system and that allows some prediction depending on the activity of that system. When we come to our immunotherapies, there are uh, a number of examples. For example, the, the CTLA-4 SNPs associated with the drug ipilimumab. you can have um, changes that are associated with a greater incidence of the immune reactions that I talked about earlier, and, and this can inform you about the, the starting dose of these things. And, and particularly, you want to avoid the severe toxicities, like some of the more severe endocrinopathies and the myocarditis. So this is what we have available to us these days to be able to personalise the initial dose of cytotoxics and supportive care drugs. Now, with supportive care drugs, we've, we've known about some of the interactions for some while, and with the 5-HT3 uh, receptor antagonists, for example, it, it may be that you, you have... Sorry, I'll just... Mm. So with the antiemetics like the 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, CYP2D6 is the key metabolic in enzyme responsible for the inactivation of many of these, particularly on dancitron and palinositron, which are some of the most used of them. And if you can find that you actually have an ultra-rapid metabolizer in terms of CYP2D6, then you can make... Um, uh, some adjustments to the dose of the drug. In fact, it may be that given that renesitron is the only one of the 5-HT3 antagonists that don't go through this pathway, it may be worth try choosing that drug for your antiemetic therapy in that sort of situation. And, and so we have uh, many examples like that. The best one already known in clinical practice is probably the interaction between the NK1 receptor antagonists uh, like a preferent and steroids where when we're giving triple antiemetic therapy, we actually halve the dose of steroids to avoid the steroid toxicity. But in fact, the patients are getting the same exposure to the steroid as they would if you gave a full dose without an NK1. So we're already using some of these principles in clinical practice, but as each new immunotherapy comes along, we've had an explosion of these potential mechanisms of uh, metabolism which need to be accounted for to accurately give the first dose.
Thank you. And obviously we want to, and perhaps it's never been more important today to give the right treatment to the right person at the right time. These novel therapies are extremely expensive, some of them costing as much as $400,000 in a year for treatment for a patient. So giving them that treatment and it not working as effectively as it should is truly a financial toxicity. And you and I have talked quite a bit about that. Can you perhaps uh, elaborate for our audience on, you know, from the patient's perspective, at least, how important it will be for her or him that their physician is working toward that end of identifying the right drug at the right time? Yes, I think that's a, a, a very good point, because the whole point of individualized treatments with targeted therapies is that we reduce the toxicities, but we also make sure by first testing whether the target is there that we don't give inappropriate treatments to which the patient can't respond. And we didn't have that luxury with some of the cytotoxics where we simply had to give a couple of doses and see if they responded or not. But what we've got to make sure we do here is 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 both measure the targets so we select the right treatment, but, but also look at the genomics of the metabolism so that we can give the correct dose and give the patient the best chance of responding. And so it's not only, as you've said, that the toxicity that they avoid if we get the initial dosing right and give themselves a better chance of responding. It's also the problems that they come with having to pay for some of these high-cost treatments. And this um, not only puts a burden on the patient, it actually puts a burden on the whole family. And studies that have been done of financial toxicity often show that patients don't make very good choices in how to deal with that. So sometimes they actually forego some of their treatment. Sometimes it's the supportive care treatment that they just you know, don't want to add into the, the, the mix. Sometimes they miss appointments, particularly if they're in more rural and remote areas and have to travel long distances into appointments. So if we, if we don't get the dosing right and we don't get the drug right, then all these other things can, can compromise the chance of a patient responding. And in fact, be a very significant impost on their quality of life because their, their socioeconomic status suddenly drops and they, they often have either lost their job or can't work while they're on treatment and therefore can't generate the, the income that, that they need to pay for all the treatments. So it, it sets up a vicious socioeconomic cycle as well if you have to pay and, and travel unnecessarily. And that, that's an impetus for the, the community clinician to make sure that they take advantage of the latest technology in dosing patients to avoid the side effects by getting the dose accurate by knowing how they're likely to metabolise the drugs given and to make sure that when they give supportive care drugs, they give it insufficient dose to, to work or they choose the right drug that won't be rapidly metabolised. So a lot of a lot of complexity in cancer care today compared to uh, yep. when we started our careers decades ago. A uh, lot more for a typical oncologists to think about, and certainly now with these novel agents, that complexity has only increased. 
in thinking through some of the challenges that you've identified today, having access to tools like pharmacokinetic testing, which has been available for some time, and it's comparatively inexpensive, pharmacogenomic sequencing being, say, adapted already within large NGS platforms that are available today as well. But managing all of that complexity in real time, you've got a busy, busy practice, you've got a number of patients in exam rooms. Can we talk a little bit about, and at least from your perspective, what kind of tools, for example, the advent of artificial intelligence that might make that complexity a little bit more easy to manage, what might be able yeah, to look, be facilitated um, more at point of care? There are, sorry, there are these tools now available to help uh, clinicians with this, I already said that there are several groups, the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium, the FDA, um, the Pharma, Pharmacogene Variation Consortium and so on, that, that looking into the recommended dose adjustments. But these drugs are coming down at a fairly rapid rate and it's very difficult to keep on top of this and to be able to take those recommendations and make them instantly available at the point of care. And this is where a management platform, which includes AI, which can do two things, it can actually collect all this data and keep the database up to date so that when a clinician goes to prescribe a supportive care drug or, or an anti-cancer therapy and feeds in the data from the, the genome studies, then you will be able to have a recommendation there as well as to whether you need to reduce the dose, how much you need to reduce it or increase it depending on, on the situation you get. So marrying all these bits of information is something that, that an, an artificial intelligence behind these platforms can do and then produce a simple um, instruction at the point of care that will enable the clinician to, to take advantage of all the work done. I think the other problem to state is that many of the recommendations, particularly with the immunotherapies at this stage, do not have you know, large clinical trials that can be accessed behind them. They're, they're, they're the series of trials as the new immunotherapies are developed but they require analysis by a group of experts. And so there's often a consensus recommendation. So it can be very hard to source that sort of recommendation unless you can source the groups that are that are making these recommendations. But also it's, a, it's an issue with being able to keep up as, as these things change, as more data comes in, as the drugs are more used in clinical practice. So really, we've got the problem of uh, this rapidly increasing knowledge base, and we have the solution of, a, of an artificial intelligence behind a platform that can um, capture all this data and, and make it accessible at point of care. Certainly having the ability to, to translate all of that information and process it against what we know from clinical research and, and genomic science can be helpful at, at point of care too. We're very grateful to Dr. Ian Olver for his time today and talking about this paradigm shift in toward precision medicine and oncology and the implications for community oncology practice. That's all for this episode of On Call. Click the link in the description to learn more about our partners at VCure and stay tuned for more educational podcast content coming soon. 
Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.